The text, the text for our Easter sermon this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 through 58. We read. Here we go. Beginning at verse 50. So 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of Jesus. It's called the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. And Paul applies it to our own resurrection that is coming. And so this is kind of like the glorious conclusion of the whole chapter, talking about what's going to happen to our bodies at the last day. We read from 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of our God. We pray. Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Strengthen us, bless us, and encourage us through your truth this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior. Amen. Three days before his death, Jesus told a story. And this story starts out like a beautiful dream. So this is Jesus' story. A wealthy king throws a wedding banquet for his one and only son. And there's something very unique about this special wedding banquet. What's unique about it is that he invites all of the commoners. So you don't have to be a king. You don't have to be a queen. You don't have to be a prince or a noble to get invited to this royal wedding. Instead, the king's servants go out throughout the land and they just give invitations to every last person that they can possibly find. Then, on the day of the wedding banquet, the king's palace is filled with ordinary people. And they're gazing at the beautiful decorations and they're enjoying the finest of foods and wines and they're listening to beautiful music. It's like a beautiful dream. The king's palace full of commoners celebrating this wedding. But all of a sudden, it takes a turn, and it turns into a nightmare. And Jesus says this in his story. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. And then finally, this inappropriately clothed man was thrown out of the banquet, into the darkness, Jesus says, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, weeping and gnashing of teeth aside, 
Have you ever had a nightmare like this? Like you're standing in front of a crowd, you're going to give a speech, and then everyone is kind of laughing at you, and you don't know why, and you realize you forgot to put on pants. Or you're about to take a semester exam, and you sit down, and you're ready, and, and then the paper hits your desk, and suddenly you realize you studied for the entirely wrong topic. Or how about this one? It's Easter Sunday. You're standing in front of your congregation. It's sermon time, and you look down and realize you forgot to write a sermon. Maybe your nightmares take different forms than mine. You know, but, but it's all different variations on the same theme. This is like a common fear that people have. It is the fear of being caught unprepared. No one wants to be caught unprepared. It's a terrible feeling. It's literally the stuff of nightmares. So today is Easter, and Easter gives us a chance to ask ourselves a tough question. Are we prepared? Prepared for what, we ask? Well, since Easter takes place in a graveyard, and it happens three days after an execution, and the kind of the featured element is a tomb, it probably shouldn't be a big mystery what we're going to talk about. Are we prepared to face death? Are we prepared to face death? As we look at the world around us, it appears that we had better be. We stand over the casket that holds a loved one's body or the urn that holds their ashes, and we grapple with the reality that this person who is living in the world is now simply gone from this world. We read the tragic headlines. Maybe it's, you know, COVID, maybe it's the war in Ukraine, maybe it's a random act of violence happening on a New York City subways this week, but you, you read these articles and you see numbers, and we recognize these aren't just statistics, these are people, real people who once were living and now are simply gone from this world. We move from our 30s to our 40s, 40s to our 50s, feel a little bit of our physical strength slipping away. We watch our parents move from their 70s to their 80s. We see a lot of their physical strength slipping away. And the point is driven home. Death is an unavoidable reality for all of us. In a world full of uncertainty, death is one of only two things that we can be certain about. The other one, of course, being taxes. But this is a fair question, and this is an important question. Are we prepared to face death? Are you prepared to face death? Based on what we see from the world around us, we had better be. And yet, how could we possibly be prepared to die? Because we want to live. Everybody wants to live. We want to enjoy friendships. We want to enjoy pleasures. We want to find fulfillment in our work. We want to experience love. It doesn't matter how young or old we are when it happens. Death is this unwelcome intruder that comes barging into our life, robbing us of the opportunities to do the things that we love and be with the people that we love. We don't want to die. We want to live. So what do we do about this? There once was a Greek philosopher named Epicurus, who proposed that since death is inevitable, the best way to deal with it is simply to ignore it 
and focus on enjoying your life. Epicurus said that the ultimate goal of life is the pursuit of pleasure, and his philosophy was often summed up by this quote, which he may or may not have actually said, but this is the quote of Epicureanism. It says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That actually kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If we can't stop death from happening, why not simply try to enjoy life? But the problem is this, how can we enjoy life when every day we feel like a little bit more of it is slipping through our fingers? Right? Our time is going away. Our time is running out. And no matter how many friends we accumulate, no matter how many achievements we achieve, no matter how many fun things we experience or possessions we pile up, the day is coming when we're going to lose it all. And it's coming sooner every day. So the more we chase the things of this world and the more we try to be happy in this world, the more we start to see the wisdom of what King Solomon said. It's chasing after the wind and you never catch it. And we even see the wisdom of what King Solomon said. Everything is meaningless. And so maybe we're not as prepared to face death as we think we are. But here's an even harder question. Are we prepared to face what comes after death? Let's go back to our friend Epicurus for another very telling quote. You know, this is the guy who allegedly had said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, he also said this, what men fear most is not that death is annihilation, but that it isn't. You follow that? Shakespeare's main character, Hamlet, said roughly the same thing. Contemplating death, he says, in that sweet sleep of death, what dreams may come? In other words, what consequences might there be in the afterlife for all the sin and foolishness that we have gotten away with here on this earth? What consequences might be coming? Now in the Bible, God answers that question, and he takes us from wondering if there might be consequences in the afterlife to telling us that there absolutely are consequences in the afterlife. And this is why. While God originally created human beings in his image, we've now fallen so far from him in sin as to be totally unrecognizable. Now, the sinful mind is hostile to God. And as a result, not only do all human beings have to die, but we deserve to die eternally, separated from God in hell. So, back to Jesus' story. If that wedding banquet is heaven, then our sin has made us into that one person who got in there somehow without the wedding clothes. It's made us into the guy who got cast out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, what are we supposed to do about all this? How do you deal with a problem that you don't have an answer for? How do you get into a party that you're unqualified to attend? Well, you don't. So maybe this life is the only party we ever get. Maybe our only option is to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That would be our spot, except for Easter. Except for Easter. 
So what exactly is Easter? It is the one time ever that historically, verifiably, a person rose from their grave and they stayed living. The most important part about it was that it wasn't just any person. Out of all the people in history, the one person who came out of their grave and stayed living happened to be the person who had claimed to be the Son of God and proved it by his miracles. It was the one person who had predicted his death and resurrection. It was the one person who had been locked up in his grave. You don't normally have to lock somebody up in their grave because they tend to stay in there. But the one person whose grave was sealed and guarded to make sure there's no resurrection funny business. It wasn't just any person. This was the person. And it also didn't happen at just any place and time. It happened at the Passover festival in Jerusalem. That was the biggest day of the biggest festival in the biggest city of the entire year. I mean, the Jewish leaders had specifically chosen to have Jesus publicly executed on the Passover holiday so that he could be humiliated and shown to be a fraud in front of thousands of witnesses. And yet the exact opposite thing happened. It was during this massive festival weekend with everybody in Jerusalem right in the middle of it all in the capital city, that is when and where Jesus rose from his grave. And it was such an amazing event that the women who came to the grave didn't even believe it at first. It seemed too good to possibly be true. But then angels started appearing, reminding them of, amidst all of Jesus' teaching, these clear phrases he had said that he was going to rise from the dead after three days. And shortly after the angels started appearing, Jesus started appearing to Mary Magdalene, to the other women on their way back to the city, to Peter on Sunday afternoon, to all the disciples on Sunday night, to all of them again the next week because Thomas missed it the first time, to James, to more than 500 believers at the same time, and finally to Paul, the writer of our sermon text, who up to the point that Jesus appeared to him had been the number one enemy and persecutor of Christianity. Jesus appeared to all of these people again and again and again. Next week, we're going to be starting a new sermon series for after Easter. It's called Witnesses. And I love that name because this is what the New Testament is. It's, it's witnesses. It's an accumulation of eyewitness testimony from the only time ever that historically, verifiably, a person rose from their grave and stayed living. And it wasn't just any person, right? It wasn't some peasant, and there was like some legend that he had been raised in some tiny village, and no one could verify it. It had happened to the one who claimed to be the Son of God and proved it by his miracles, and it had happened in the capital city on that big Passover day, right in the middle of everything. And in the midst of all of it, still Jesus rose. So what does this mean for us, right, and for our life and for our future? And why is this the center point of Christianity? Well, it's because it changes everything. Easter changes everything by proving that all of Jesus' words are true. 
So what were Jesus' words? Well, this is Jesus' summary of his mission on the earth. Jesus said, here's why he came. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Not only did Jesus suffer God's penalty of eternal death on the cross for our sins, but he had also lived a perfect life in our place, a sin-free life, a life in the image of God, a life that qualifies us to spend eternity with God in heaven. So think back to Jesus' story one more time. Imagine that that guest is about to get tossed by the bouncers for not having the proper attire, and he's going to go out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But before he gets taken away, the prince, the king's own son, whose wedding feast it is, comes up behind him and throws his royal robe around him and says, no, 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 this guy's with me. All of a sudden, not only is this guest welcome to stay at the banquet, but now he is honored as the king's own son. And that's what Jesus did for us. And it's demonstrated so beautifully in baptism. Right? So we saw Colleen get baptized today. Printed on her baptism certificate is a verse from the book of Galatians. And it says this, All of you who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You think about that. Clothed with Christ. Jesus' perfect life is wrapped around you. That's what you're wearing to the banquet. People say, who are you wearing on the red carpet? Well, I'm wearing Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, and when God looks at you, even right now through faith in Jesus, God looks at you and he sees Christ. Right now, he sees a perfect person spiritually qualified for heaven. But it gets even better and this really then is the thrust of our sermon text today, we learn that on Easter, Jesus physically qualified us for heaven as well. And we said this before when we were getting real about death. We said human beings don't want to die. We want to live. We don't want some kind of a misty, ghostly afterlife where we're sitting on a cloud and playing a harp, right? We want to be living in a body, real pleasures, real life, real relationships, real love, God made human beings to have physical bodies. And because of Easter, we will get to have them and enjoy them forever. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. And when that happens, the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. In other words, not only will you one day get to stand before God, washed in the blood of Jesus, clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus, adopted as his child and free from fear. But you're going to get to do it in your own body, rebooted and rebuilt to last eternally. It is the most ancient hope in the Bible. One of the earliest Bible characters that we meet is a man named Job. 
Job lived way back, like 2,000 years B.C., probably around the time of Abraham. Maybe some of you remember Job's story. He went through this terrible amount of misfortunes in a very short period of time. Then he received a bunch of terrible, discouraging advice from his friends. But through all of it, Job held on to his faith, and this is what he said. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So the hope of a physical resurrection at the last day didn't begin on Easter. It's the most ancient hope in the Bible. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where the devil had brought sin and death, and God promised a Savior who is going to bring forgiveness and life. So your physical resurrection to eternal life on the last day, that sounds kind of too good to be true, doesn't it? And that's what the women thought. That's what the disciples thought. That's what James thought. That's what Paul thought. But then they saw the risen Jesus. And he appeared to them happy and healthy and alive and well. Because he had defeated death just like he said he would. And that means our death has been defeated too. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So what does that mean for our life? Well, it simply means this. Yes, Easter is about something that happened a long time ago. It's about this historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be the Son of God and then proved it by rising from the dead. And yes, Easter is about something that's going to happen to you someday. That one day your body will rise and you'll get to experience eternal life physically with your God in heaven. But Easter is also about the present. It's about the fact that right now, Despite our sins and struggles, we are walking through life as the forgiven children of God, clothed already with the righteousness of Christ. It's about the fact that the relationships we enjoy with Christian friends and family members here on earth, these are relationships that last beyond this earth. These friendships and these bonds will last forever in heaven. And finally, it's about the fact that 100% of the people we encounter on a daily basis are people who are facing the problem of death, and most don't have a good answer for it. But we get to be God's messengers, bringing the incredible good news, the hope of resurrection and eternal life to people in our world, every single person who desperately needs to hear it. So Easter is not just about this thing that happened to Jesus, and Easter is not just about this thing that's going to happen to you at the end of the world. Easter is about your life right now and who you are and get to continue to be forever. And therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your risen Savior. Amen.